Welcome to Playing Big, a podcast about what it means to play big in life and in business, and about changing the world with big ideas and big action. I'm your host, Blaine Fyan, Chief Evangelist here at True Footage, and I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to Playing Big. What is the ROI of you? If you don't know what ROI stands for, I'll tell you. ROI stands for Return on Investment, and it's used throughout the business and investing world as a way to kind of peel back the layers of financial decision-making to see if what you're investing your time, your money, your social capital, uh, in essence, any of your resources on is paying off. It's a KPI. It's a key performance indicator. Return on investment. If your ROI, your return on investment is negative, meaning your return on any investment of any kind of resources less than what you are investing, in in a sense, your capital is being eroded, In most cases, you would deem that investment to be failing and time to make some changes. Now, of course, if you're a business person, you're an investor in the stock market, you know that many investments don't pay off right away. This could be a long-term investment. You might be willing to take some losses or some erosion of your capital initially in that short term. Uh, And it could be short-term in terms of expectations of a a nice fat return. And it might not always look so great, but if you know that it's a long-term payoff. Okay, fine. But in the short term, if your expectation is to get some type of return, even if it's a one-to-one return and it is not happening, well, that's considered a bad investment. And that is the view from the side of the person or the company who is making the investment. You make some kind of investment and you go, well, what is my expected return? Normally you would ask that question before you make the investment. You're going to do some calculations and you're going to use a couple of things, a couple of tools that I'm going to talk about in a second to help you decide, make decisions on whether or not you should make that investment. You're putting something out there and you're watching it to see what the return might be over time. And the hope, of course, is that the return will be greater than the sum of what has been invested. Otherwise, why would you invest it? And all investments are viewed through the lens of something called, these are the tools I I mentioned I was going to tell you about, opportunity cost, it's one, and the principle of substitution opportunity cost appraisers. This should be very common language for appraisers. We use the principle of substitution every single day as we do opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is essentially the return or the benefits one would miss out on by picking one thing or one option over another. If you pick, for example, one restaurant, you have the option of of half a dozen restaurants in your town. You pick one over the other. Well, what is the opportunity cost? The opportunity cost is all of the other ones that you didn't choose. The opportunity cost is the restaurant not chosen. It's the cost that you have accepted as a foregone conclusion when you collapse all decision-making opportunities down to one. I always, re- I always uh, uh, use the analogy of a, of, of a deck of cards or a hand of cards that you're holding. Each one of those cards represents potential for a decision. And when people make decisions, they're essentially folding their hand. They're collapsing all of those options into one card so you only see the top card. That's the choice you make. And the opportunity cost is all the cards underneath that that you didn't choose. You laid those on the table. I'm out. That's opportunity cost. I choose this one over that one. And if I choose, for example, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse over Morton's Steakhouse, two great steakhouses, well, the opportunity cost is everything that I can't order at Morton's. Why? Because I'm not there. I chose Ruth's Chris. That's what I've given up when I choose one over the other. Hopefully, when we make that decision, we end up happy with our, de- our decision. 
And we think, well, I had a great experience. It was an amazing dinner. I got an awesome return on my investment in terms of the experience. But no, we likely wouldn't say the last part after eating out. But the idea of opportunity cost is an important consideration when making important choices. Because when we say yes to one thing, this is just a good uh, business uh, uh, exercise. Really a life exercise. When you say yes to something, you're always saying no to other things. Not just one thing, you're saying no to the whole universe of possibilities. When we say yes to one thing, we're ultimately saying no to all the possibilities associated with choosing all the things we didn't choose. That, my friends, is opportunity cost. What you say yes to, you have to recognize what you're also saying no to. Now, the principle of substitution essentially says that the upper limit of value of anything, shoestrings, which I used an analogy in in the last podcast, or houses. The principle of substitution says the upper limit of value of almost anything tends to be set by the cost of acquiring an equally desirable substitute, assuming no untimely delays or hassles will will be there in acquiring the less expensive version. So two houses exactly the same. Everything is exactly the same, but one of them is $10,000 less. In the principle of substitution, the perfect matched Pairs example, model matches. Why would somebody pay $10,000 more for the exact same thing if they can get it for $10,000 less? Unless there's a hassle in acquiring. It's an example I use in my classes all the time when I'm teaching agents and lenders about the principle of substitution. You have those two model matches. They look exactly the same. Oh, the one that's $10,000 cheaper you find out is a foreclosure property or it's uh, in probate and it's going to take six months to get through the red tape. Ah, okay, there it is. There was a hassle in, in, in acquiring the cheaper one, and that's why it was cheaper. Okay, good. Now I know that the more expensive one, in many ways, isn't more expensive because there's less hassle. I can own it today. Another example would be a good investor paying no more for an income property than it would be to, to than it would cost to build or purchase a similar property. Now you can't always build in the areas where the income properties exist, but This is the principle of substitution. Why would an investor pay more to acquire an existing income property than what what it would cost to build one or purchase a similar property, assuming the less expensive version is equally attainable, isn't tied up in probate, and that there are no bigger hassles associated with buying the cheaper one as that would cost the, the cost of the time and the money and whatever that the cheaper one is. And when you, when you weigh it that way, the cheaper one might not actually be cheaper due to the loss of time and the income potential. You buy an income property today, you get the rents, the rents next month from the existing renters. If you have to wait six months, not only is your money tied up potentially, it can't be invested in something, something else that's called lost opportunity cost. We just talked about that. And you don't have those rents coming in. Now, as an appraiser, as I mentioned, we use the principle of substitution every single day on every appraisal. We're always looking at what else a buyer could buy that might be considered a suitable or a reasonable alternative to the subject property should the subject property not be available. If there are any trainee appraisers listening, this is a good lesson. I tell agents this phrase all the time. When you are trying to look for apples to apples comparisons, comparable sales, have this phrase running through the back of your mind. Would my buyers consider this comp, this comparable sale, a suitable alternative to the subject property if the subject property was not available? And if you can't honestly 100% say yes, well, then it's not really a comparable sale. 
we're essentially always looking at this hypothetical buyer. What else could they buy with their money? What else would they consider suitable and reasonable as alternatives to whatever it is we're appraising if the thing we're appraising wasn't available? Now, we end up calling those determinations comparable sales, but they could just as easily be referred to as what I call the triple S, suitable substitutes for the subject. Those are comparable sales, suitable substitutes for the subject property. And then sometimes we have to give market adjustments for differences. Now, why is this important to understand opportunity costs and the principle of substitution? I do have a method to the madness. We are going somewhere. You just got to trust me on this and follow for a little bit. It is not that having a great understanding of opportunity cost and the principle of substitution is not just so that we can be better investors, better appraisers, and make better decisions, although understanding those two principles does go a long way in those efforts. No, the reason that I wanted to lay those two principles before you in this episode is because I want to encourage you to use those two principles, but not from the standard position of looking outward at the world and asking the question, what will the world of opportunity return to me for my investment of time and money, but instead looking inward and asking the question, what kind of return will the world receive from me today for its investment of time, money, trust, endorsement, faith, promotion, and whatever else it decides to invest into me today? People who care about value view themselves through the lens of ROI, return on investment and opportunity cost, but they do it from the view of the world of investors who are investing in them, not just from their own outward view of the kind of return they're getting on their own investments. I hope you're seeing that shift. We all invest our time and our resources into things. Sometimes we consciously expect a return on that investment. Other times we don't even think about it. Like the Ruth's Chris Steakhouse example, I don't expect a return on my investment. I want to have a good experience. I want to have good food, but that's not really a return on investment in the traditional sense. But how many times do you consciously ask the question, what kind of return on investment are my investors getting on me? Well, the answer for most of you, unless you're in a startup where you actually have investors, the answer is probably never. Why? Because you don't have people necessarily investing in you in the traditional sense. And this idea, by the way, transcends business owners. We've been teaching this idea to our own employees in my company for years now because we believe it should be the mindset of every employee of every organization going forward. When you see yourself essentially as a business of one, so to speak, and you are the CEO of that company of one, I don't care if you're in an organization with five, 10, 100, 1,000, or 10,000 people. What I'm telling you to do is ask yourself the question, what are my investors getting as far as a return on investment of their investment in me? I am a company of one and I am a CEO of you incorporated. Or if you're talking to yourself, me incorporated. Those are the questions you would ask of yourself if you were the CEO and you would also be asked by your investors. But Blaine, I'm an independent appraiser. I'm, I've been, I bootstrapped my business from the ground up with no investors. I've never taken a dime from anybody else. That, that's not what I'm talking about. That's an, what's called an equivocation on the word investor. That's when you use one word to mean something else. When I use the word investor in this context, I'm referring to everybody in your life who is or has invested in you with their trust, their faith, their time, their emotions, their money, their 
endorsement of you and any other resource that they might invest in you. Recognize when human beings do that, they are investing in you. And although they may not expect a return on that investment, most likely there's some slight expectation, even if subconscious. If you work for somebody else, by the way, employees of organizations, your boss is your investor, your customers and clients are your investors, your coworkers and colleagues are your investors, your family has invested in you in some way. And although not all of those people are specifically seeking or consciously seeking a return on their investment in you, the question isn't, the question isn't who is seeking a return. The question you should always be asking is, are they getting one? They may not be asking, am I getting a return on my investment of time, money, faith, endorsement, promotion, referral, or whatever. But that doesn't preclude you from asking the question. You should still be asking the question, are they getting a return? And when you can begin to see yourself in terms of opportunity cost for your investors, you go to another level in terms of value creation, in my opinion. The author, Donald Miller, the man who wrote the book on how to market your business using with the now famous story brand method. If you're not familiar with Donald Miller and the story brand method, stop everything. Well, don't stop everything, but look it up. Brilliant. He also wrote a book called Business Made Simple. And in here, he calls this concept, it's slightly different, but he calls it viewing yourself as an economic product on the open market. And being obsessed with getting people a strong return on their investment in you. So he, he encourages people who really value value, if you will, to see themselves as a product that is available on the market and people can invest in you and then questioning whether or not they are going to get a strong return on their investment. Now, I'm not a fan of the, the words of Donald Miller's uh, use of the words economic product. I think it's confusing for people, but I'm a big fan and a believer of the philosophy of everyone viewing themselves from the viewpoint of the people who are investing in them, especially if you're a business owner. When you get up each morning and you get prepared for your day at work, if you're thinking in terms of how much return on investment you're going to deliver to your clients, your customers, and the investors that day, you're automatically in a completely different category and mindset than any competing business, any other employees, any of your colleagues, guaranteed. Most people wake up in the morning and they prepare for the day by thinking about all the things they have to get done, all the stuff on their to-do list, who they might have to deal with that day, how they're going to handle that awkward conversation that they've been putting off, how they're going to avoid barb at lunch or in the hallway or stew in the break room. That's what people are thinking about. If you are a one-person business, like most good appraisers are, you're not thinking about how much value you can add for your investors tomorrow and what kind of return on investment of their time and money and faith and trust, endorsement and referral, their orders, manpower that they may have invested in you or to do business with you, you're thinking about how many houses you have to walk through today. You're thinking about what files are sitting on your desk screaming at you to finish because you're approaching due date or past due date. Which ones do I need to upload? Which revision requests do I have to get done so that pesky client will stop bothering me and so on? It's the life of an appraiser, I know. However, my encouragement is that as soon as you make that shift into thinking in terms of ROI or return on investment for my investors, the whole universe of people who are investing and, and buying my products and service, something wonderful happens. When you make that subtle shift in thinking, you shift from burden to gratitude. When you make that shift in thinking, you shift from me thinking 
to them thinking. It's not about you and your schedule. It's about them and their investment in you and the people who focus on being a good investment. Well, they will attract more investments into them. That's the magic. If you learn about, if you dive into, if you study on and you become awakened to what good investments look and feel like, the principles of good investing, you tend to attract more good investment opportunities. And I'm specifically using this word attract. Now, why does this happen? Well, it happens because of something called the reticular activation system. It's that part of your brain that is constantly surveying your surroundings for threats and opportunities for survival. That's what our brain is designed to do. Burn calories, keep us alive. However, the interesting thing about the RAS, the reticular activation system, is that it only knows what to look for in terms of threats and opportunities based on what you tell it to look for. How do you teach it what to look for regarding threats and opportunities? Well, it's based on what you read, what you watch, uh, what kinds of information you consume, what kinds of things you study and research, uh, who you hang out with, what kinds of conversations you're having, and so on. Your, your RAS, your reticular, reticular activation system, it's the mechanism in your brain that makes you see, for example, tons of green cars on the road right after you buy a green car. You, you buy a green car, you drive off the lot, and you go, holy cow, everybody must have gone out and bought green cars. Look at all the green cars I now see. Police officers run into this all the time when they're interviewing uh, people who've, say, witnessed an accident. Now that it's fresh in their mind, they see certain things that they wouldn't have seen before. Before that, maybe you had seen the occasional green car. Of course, you've seen green cars, but your, your brain filtered out all of the other ones. Were the green cars always there? Well, of course they were. Your brain just wasn't tuned into that frequency, so they didn't stand out in your world. Not to mention they aren't threats nor opportunities. But as soon as your brain is tuned into something, it's tuned into that frequency. To activate the RAS, you have to study up on a particular thing so that your brain knows what to look for or to look for a certain thing in its environment. So for example, the more you study up on good investments, the more you learn to recognize what a good investment looks like and what makes it a good investment. And knowing what makes something a good investment typically comes down to knowing what the potential for return on that investment is relative to all the other investments that you could make into other things. What do we call that? We talked about it earlier. It's called the opportunity cost and the principle of substitution. Once that knowledge is firmly in your brain, it can now turn on the reticular activation system to be on the lookout for good investments. In fact, things will come across your desk and you'll be like, holy cow, this is just the type of investment we've been studying up on. Is it magic? No. Those types of things have probably come across your desk before. You just weren't tuned into that frequency. And that's why I specifically said I used the phrase attract more good investments, like you become magnetic to them. And the implication is that they just magically come to you. They show up in your mailbox and they fall in your lap, which can be misleading. No, attracting something typically just means that you're in tune with that thing and your brain is on the lookout for it, where before it wouldn't have recognized that thing if it was knocking on the front door and dressed like the mailman. When you become attuned to what a good investment looks like, you now tend to see more opportunities all around you. And those who focus on being a good investment will attract more investment into them as a result. Do you see the connection? I hope so. When you offer greater value and ROI, 
return on investment, than what is being paid, you are eventually paid more. You're referred and endorsed more. more. You attract greater opportunity. You're given greater responsibility. You're promoted more and you're sought after in the marketplace. If you're not delivering more than what you're paid for, people may still buy, they may still hire you, but you'll always be viewed to a large degree as a commodity. Your clients and customers may not leave you today and tomorrow, but they will not go out of their way likely to refer or endorse or send more and lift you up financially. You'll always just be used for the commodity value that you offer, which is essentially your value as compared to whatever the next cheapest version of that thing is. And if they find a cheaper version, well, where do you think they're going to go? Now, on the flip side, the market loves to pay more for people, products, and services that deliver more value than the cost to acquire. Remember remember the principle of substitution? We love to pay more for things when they deliver more value than their cost. The way that one of the greatest, in my opinion, marketing teachers in history, a man named Jay Abraham, refers to this, is that customers will stay, say, and pay more for products and services that give you more than they cost. Stay, say, and pay is a fun way to say that your clients and customers will be loyal longer. That's the stay part. And lifetime value of a client is a super important concept to know. How long will I keep this client? How much will they spend with me over a year, two years, five years, 10 years? What's the lifetime value? If you don't know that, that's a number you should know. So they will stay, say, meaning that they will refer you more. They will say more about you. They will talk about you in the marketplace. And they will endorse you more. And then pay, well, pay is pay. They'll pay more for your product or your service than they will for a competing product or service that doesn't deliver as much value. They will stay, say, and pay more when you offer more than what the cost is to acquire it. When you start the day with the question, what type of a return on investment can I deliver to my investors today? You are starting from a completely different position than almost every other competing product or service, guaranteed. And the message for listeners who are working for somebody else, for example, is maybe even more powerful, in my opinion. I mean, this is good advice for business owners. This is great advice for employees. It's a powerful shift in mindset from paid employee to CEO of you incorporated. If every employee of every company came to work with the mindset of what kind of return on their investment of me can I deliver back to the company, there would be a revolution. There's not because people aren't, employees aren't asking that question on a regular basis. But here's the good news. Because very few people think in terms of being the CEO of you incorporated, they think in terms of how much they're being paid, what's the minimum needed to deliver on the job description. Maybe they do a little more, maybe they don't, but rarely do employees think in terms of ROI for their investors. And the good news is the bar is really low. So when you do that, that shift in mindset elevates you. Businesses are not just looking for a $1 investment to return $1 in work from their, from their employees. If they did, they would never get ahead in the world and eventually they, they would go out of business. All businesses look for $2, $3, $5, maybe 10 or more of return for every $1 invested into their people, their products, their services. So simple math equation would be if, if you're paid $50,000, every $50,000 a year employee, a company is typically looking to get a return of on the low side, $100,000. 
two to one, but more likely 150 to 250, which would be a 3x or 5x return on, on their investment because you have to build in what's called a fully burdened, burdened labor cost, which is benefits and all the other stuff. How many employees of a business know this and think in terms of getting a decent financial return for the investment that is being made in them? Well, most likely very few. Part of the fault can be placed on employers, not teaching their employees this. Part of our education system could be to blame. Part on upbringing, our parents didn't teach us this, and so on. But blame gets us nowhere. And again, the good news is that because so few think this way, the market of opportunity for business and for employees of businesses is massive. How much return are you creating for your investors right now? And investors being anybody investing in you with their time, their faith, their money, their endorsement, their referrals, any resource. How much return could you be creating? How much more return could you create with just a subtle shift in your mindset? How much ROI are you creating for your employer if you're an employee? How much more return could you create for them with this mindset? You look around and you go, oh, I get it. If I do more, they'll get a better return on me. I'll look better. I'll get more promotion. My income will go up. Of course, the stakes will go up. When your income goes up, they expect more from you. You got to get a bigger return the higher up you go. What would the cost of acquiring another one just like you be on the open market? That's essentially what you're competing against, folks. All of us are. What is the cost of acquiring another one just like us, but maybe better? The assumption is the cost of acquiring one just like us would be more and they would get less. Okay, maybe. But you have to ask that question. What's the cost of acquiring another one just like me on the open market? Do you deliver more value than what it costs the market to hire you and keep you there? And if so, how much more value? Are your investors getting a one-to-one -one return? You make $50,000 a year, they make $50,000 back. Well, that's a break even. And at the end of the day, it's a loss. Are they getting a 3x, a 5x return? And if you don't know, well, how could you find out? For business owners, could this be a valuable conversation to have with your top two or three clients and customers for the purposes of learning what they consider to be valuable and a good return on their investment in, in choosing you? For employees of businesses, do you think this would be a good conversation to have with your boss? Do you think they'd be impressed with somebody wanting to know how they could help produce and deliver three times their cost in profitability back to the company? Now, as I, I understand how this sounds. As horribly reductionist and utilitarian as this will sound, you are only, I say you, I'm talking about all of us. We are only as valuable to our investors as what it would cost them to replace us or acquire something similar, assuming the hassle wouldn't be that great. What I am imploring and encouraging you to do is make the gap between cost and value so vast that nobody would ever consider leaving you, losing you, or not referring and endorsing you. What would the CEO of you, Incorporated, do? Until next week, my friends, I'm out. <laughs>